they want the best for their patients, which is the right thing. Um, and they also get paid better if they, if for, for better outcomes of their patients. And I think one of the things they did was like during a heat wave in Philadelphia, they went and bought air conditioners for their patients. Right. Like, I mean, I mean, think about that for a minute. Like this is a doctor trained in internal medicine has decided that we have a heat wave coming. Potentially our patients are going to get hospitalized. If they get hospitalized, one, that's bad for the patients. It's bad for us. We love our patients. We don't want that to happen. Welcome to Message Engineer for the MedTech Startup. Do you want a clear message that resonates? Compelling message that scales? Competitive message that nails your unique value? On this show, we interview guests across medical device disciplines to help you communicate and message powerfully. Your host, Maureen Schaefer, is a three-time vice president of marketing with 30 years of experience creating money-moving messages from startups to IPO and beyond. Here's your host, Maureen Schaefer. Welcome to the Message Engineer Show. I am Maureen Schaefer, the host. And today we have Dr. J.B. Munoz, MD. He is currently active in medical device development and is a patent holder in medical AI. Uh, Dr. Munoz has worked as a medical director, combat physician, and surgical intensivist at the U.S. Department of Defense, or DOD. He was awarded a Congressional Fulbright Fellowship, which he applied to infectious disease research in South America. And Dr. Munoz graduated from Duke University, my alma mater, uh, School of Medicine, and did his general surgery residency at Harvard. So welcome to the Message Engineer Show. Thank you, Maureen. Very excited. Excited to have you. I just wanted to quickly shout out MedTech Vets for introducing us. And uh, you can check out medtechvets.org uh, to learn more about them. Yes, outstanding organization. All the kudos to MedTech Vets. Yes, they're a wonderful organization. I think everybody should uh, look them up, reach out to them. Uh, wonderful, wonderful service for, uh, for our vets and active duty service members. And a great opportunity for medtech companies to hire some really amazing people with incredible experience. Yes, absolutely. Uh, all right. So we start with define the word warm up. Uh, so a couple of words. Uh, I'm really curious because everyone's talking about it. Uh, and you've had a chance to work with it in medical on the medical side. So medical AI. Oh, wow. Yeah. Big topic, huge topic. Um, so define the word. Uh, so I think when I think of medical AI, I essentially think of language, large language models that can supplant and assist physicians in uh, making clinical decisions. Um, I'm sure medical AI is probably a larger umbrella term. It would encompass all of medicine. But for me personally, being a clinician, I think of it more as large language models that will help digest um encyclopedic amounts of information from the internet and then give this give those to us physicians in digestible uh, insights to help us make better clinical decisions that's how I think of them that's yeah that's great uh, everyone's talking about AI and it means something different to everyone so it's very helpful to have kind of your view on that your point of view on that uh, a couple ones which you should probably expect uh, message. Message. Yeah. So I, I guess when I think, you know, I'm, I'm reminded, so I did a, an internship when I was younger, when I was in college, um, I did an internship with a surgeon general and he 
he, one of the lessons he'd be into my head was message versus meta message. And ultimately, so, you know, as being a very early lesson and something that just kind of stuck with me, uh, when I think of message or meta message, I ultimately think of, you know, what is the, the thought virus or mental virus that is implanted in your brain um, when somebody has got, has achieved your attention. You've, you've devoted your attention to that. They deliver an item, a fragment of information. What do you walk away with? I consider that to be the message. That is, that is a, a great way to look at it. It's one of the things that in, you know, kind of classical traditional advertising, they measure Right is do you re, what do you remember? <laughs> right, and of course, you know, to, to to his point, when I when I was interning with the Surgeon General, he said you have to be careful because you're going to deliver a message, but your body language, your tone, you know, who you mm -hmm. are, your background, all those messages carry a meta message with them, and so always be cognizant of your meta message. So by meta message, uh, did he mean, and do you mean, uh, kind of all the nonverbal cues, or is it more different than that? And I think anything beyond what you maybe didn't intend, right? So you may have mm -hmm. a talking point or a message that you want to deliver, but then, you know, incorporated in this kind of larger global sense of all the things that surround you, the deliverer of the message, what you did or what um, platform you, you use to get the mm -hmm. person's attention, all of that, there's, there's this kind of metaverse around your message that is also delivered with your message. And so you have to be cognizant of that at all, at all times as well. Um, and that, yes, that includes, you know, you as the messenger, it includes you know, your tone, nonverbal cues, et cetera. I mean, all of the above. Yeah. As well as the, yeah, I love the idea of including the platform on which it's delivered, right? You can imagine if it's delivered via, I know it's a surgeon general, let's say the American Medical Association, right? Or right. WHO, it carries a certain gravitas to it that if you were Absolutely. to deliver it via, I don't know some local news station in some small town in the United States may not carry right the same amount of, maybe important, may not carry yeah. the same amount of weight. So what's the, and this, I'm dating myself here, right? I mean, so I did that internship when I was in college and um, at the time, the Surgeon General at the time was David Satcher and he, uh, speaking about the message upon which you deliver things, right? So he, he would tell me, uh, you know, like, you know, I go around all the time and I tell people live a healthier lifestyle. I tell them, you know, uh, eat more fruits and vegetables or get more exercise. And he's like, it's one thing to tell somebody that and then shake their hand. That's one way to, to deliver the message. I could also write it on a sticky note and give it to them. But so what he did was he, um, he had a prescription pad printed out and he put down on there all of the major kind of health uh, advice that he wanted to deliver to people. And he would have little check boxes on them. And so he, when he would meet people, he would get their name, he'd write it on the prescription pad, and then he would just check off what health advice he wanted to give them. And he would hand it to them. And of course it'd be signed already, you know, Surgeon General David Satcher. And that's how he would deliver his messages. It was very, it was, it was clever and kind of, you know, in, for the late nineties, it was, uh, it, it had a lot of traction back then. I don't know anymore now that little paper scripts uh, have any traction. Most, most probably millennials and Gen Z's don't know what a prescription pad is, but Back then, it was uh, it was a useful way to to spread the message. Well, I think that I think that's fascinating because there was, I mean, whether it's a prescription pad or it's another kind of medium, right? It's that the weight that people used to take, but you know, if someone gave you a prescription, you, you take it seriously. If they're like, "Hey, sure. you may want to consider taking some vitamins," that's less of oh, yeah. a if they wrote it down with the, you know, so many milligrams a day or a week, or it was a, felt a little more serious. So for sure, and to, you know, to that, to that extent, it's kind of funny to think about how medicine has transitioned. So when I, 
first kind of you know, had my my first initial decisions to, to think about going into medicine. Um, well, I'd been a paramedic before I went into medicine, but um, you know, going through those the paramedic courses and whatnot, we learned. I don't remember why we had to just learn. Oh, we had to learn how to read prescriptions, and um, mm-hmm. so we had to go through this whole. Uh, medical language and um, medical terminology course, and then also learn how to read prescriptions. There's there's a whole um, scribe kind of um, nomenclature for writing prescriptions. And I had to learn this. And I remember thinking when I went to medical school, how excited I was. I mean, that's the weapon to yield, right? If you're going to become a soldier, you learn how to shoot a weapon. And that's kind of like an exciting part about becoming a soldier is becoming really tactically proficient in, in weapons um, and firearms, et cetera. And, uh, and you become a doctor, you learn how to wield a scalpel, but then you also learn how to wield a pen and a prescription pad. I mean, that's how I'd always envisioned it. And then only to find out that like, as I graduate medical school, all prescriptions are now written on computers, right? So there, there's no need. I had, I have this, I still remember how to write prescriptions in that old prescription nomenclature, um, but it's completely useless now. I don't, you know, it's not it's <laughs> completely uh, archaic and com- obsolete, obsolete, but one of my, one of my main disappointments after, uh, after getting out of med school. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> Every now and then I spend, I spend my evenings just writing old prescriptions in the old prescription nomenclature just to pass time. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. It is, it is funny to think back at what we, what used to be important skills and what are, have gone completely obsolete. And I oh, think yeah. that, uh, that it's all right. I, I wonder looking forward, right. Everything is in an EH, you know, it rolls up in some way, shape or form at the end of the day to an electronic history record, right. Um, sure. the m- most data, <laughs> all but a yeah. lot. And, uh, I wonder kind of what, I mean, AI, we see AI as kind of the, the next thing coming down the pike. Do you see any other, I mean, there's a lot of shifting going on in the industry, right? Primary cares, disaggregating a bit and shifting a lot of these hospitals and even surgeons and physicians are employees of these very large healthcare systems um, that include a lot of different facilities. I mean, what do you have a sense for kind of what comes if there's AI and then what are some of the exciting things going on that you think are really heading us towards the future in? Yeah. I mean, you know, when you, when you ask that question, that, yeah, the first thing, the first thing is going to mind you, I have a lot of ideas about like the kind of the future of healthcare and what's going to happen to healthcare in kind of this global sense. Um, but you know, like the, as far as like the kind of the, there's, there's also this healthcare technology, um, sphere mm-hmm. where there's just like some really sexy stuff coming down, you know, AR, VR, really interesting. I don't know how much traction or how much, you know, throughput or, or how much, um, weight it will ever gain in the, in the medical sector. I mean, obviously there's some challenges that, uh, meta or Facebook is currently facing with the whole VR revolution or the transition to VR. But, um, but in medicine, there's some really, the, the, in my opinion, the neat stuff that's coming out is kind of the interface of VR and AR and robotics in, in medicine, particularly in surgery. That's the really neat kind of sexy stuff. Unfortunately, that's, that I think is a, such a small part of healthcare as a whole mm-hmm. that, um, yeah, that's probably more of a niche and just more of a kind of an interest of mine. But as far as healthcare as a whole, I think the, you know, I, I work very closely with a company called Pearl. I've partnered with them recently and um, they are kind of more on the global management of patients and assisting physicians in this value-based care. 
mm-hmm. you know, kind of tra- transitioning more from fee for service and kind of a transactional relationship between doctors and patients to this kind of more holistic, global, total uh, population uh, control and population health management mm-hmm. movement. And so the first, and I don't know if this is the, the right answer, but it's the first answer that comes to mind when you say like, what, what do I kind of see happening? Especially particularly with AI. I mean, all that I think will fit into this larger picture of the global continuum of care. And I think health systems are going to start taking responsibility for patients over a more global uh, trajectory of their lifetimes or over larger parts of their lives. And to kind of give you a scenario that will illustrate this, you know, so value-based care is this kind of new model that came out of CMMI and it, you know, it, it, it essentially is trying to promulgate a system in which doctors will take more initiative and take more responsibility and take more control over the outcomes of their patients in the healthcare system. So that you'll get paid based on how well your patients do. Well, if you're going to do something like that, you really have to have a more holistic picture of your patients, right? Because you can't just see somebody for 20 minutes a month or 30 minutes a week even, and then be expect be expected to be responsible for the entire trajectory and the entire continuum of care for that patient, right? So in order to do that, in order to be responsible for the entirety of a, of a patient's health and welfare and to be, you know, like Hippocrates said, the guardian of their, of their health and welfare, you need a lot more insight to what your patients are doing. You need to know what they're eating, when and where they're exercising. What do they spend most of their time doing? What are, what dangers environmental and otherwise are they exposed to in their daily lives? And so as I look at, you know, some of the, some of the, both the tech, the software and, and just the, the, the behaviors, attitudes of these healthcare systems, there's a greater amount of focus on getting information on patients throughout the, co- covering the entire spectrum of their daily lives, not just what you get from their blood pressure, pulse ox, heart monitor in a 30 minute visit. Um, so you know, I mentioned, I mentioned Pearl, one of the, one of the real interesting things about uh, Pearl health is that they've got a, they've got a, to me, just this groundbreaking revolution, just sector revolutionizing software platform that allows them to see, you know, all the touch points that a patient will have with the healthcare system. It allows them to see when your patient gets a, a med refilled, when they get discharged from a hospital, when they go to urgent care, when they've been seen by you, when they're due for their annual well visit, when they've had a, um, um, a routine um, recommended uh, uh, procedure. So like a colonoscopy or a breast exam, mm-hmm. you can see all of this stuff, regardless of kind of where they go, as long as it, it's reported to, to CMS, it gets logged into the software system and then the doctor can see all of that. So now you're not just restricted in seeing your patients. You're not re- just restricted to what they tell you or just what shows up in the EMR in your office. You now have a view of what, what interactions they're having with the health system as a whole. And so I think that's, that's in overall, to answer your question, I think that's where healthcare is going. And then the question is, well, how will AI integrate with that? And ultimately, I just think AI in the early stages will just be used to kind of collate that data and um, into nice digestible data insights for the physician. It's interesting because you said, because I thought, how are they, right? We know about all these big health systems. We, you know, how do you pick up all that data? But CMS, right? So medic, presumably Medicare or Medicare, Medicaid patients at this point in time. Yeah, probably Medicare at this time, but it, mm-hmm. Medicaid will fit in. So yeah, it's the CMS data. Yeah. Yeah. So starting with kind of the the older patients who tend to have, uh, from what some of the data I've read, an increasing number of chronic diseases. Right. Most of, most of those are preventable in some way, yep. shape, or form. For sure. For sure. 
I'm curious, and I mean, this gets to kind of marketing and med tech and, you know, development of things. Uh, I heard something the other day that someone said something effective. The problem is, is that we get folks as adults at 18 or 21, but the bulk of what will affect their future health has already occurred. Like those things that are going to affect how they eat or how they exercise or, you know, you know, childhood trauma, things like this, um, have already happened. So are we, are we kind of, we change, it's always a question in healthcare, right? You have to start somewhere, (laughs) get moving. Uh, So what Pearl's doing sounds really exciting. Uh, I always wonder, we, we tend to focus on end of life, right? Because there's a lot of dollars spent there. Right. is that yeah, yeah. No, I, so I think you get actually. I'm reminded of this when I was in when I was in college. I did this program. Uh, I went to USC in Southern California, but I did this program up at Stanford. It was like a summer healthcare for people who were interested in, in healthcare. And mm-hmm. I remember um, I had they, they assign you with uh, a partner to do research with. They sign you with a faculty member, and you're supposed to just mm-hmm. do this like summer research project or whatever. And um, I was working on at the time like obesity, metabolic syndrome, stuff like that. And I remember coming across and kind of like my pre research coming across a, um, an article and I, you know, I would love to be able to cite it. I just, I've forgotten it, but um, you know, who wrote it or, or what, what uh, journal it came out in. But ultimately what I remember it suggesting was that particularly with metabolic syndrome, your metabolic syndrome is your baseline metabolic state is essentially defined in your teen years. And one of the things they pointed out was like the number of fat cells that you're going to have for your lifetime is essentially defined in your uh, preteen, adolescent, and then teen years. Um, and then the fat cells from there on will just grow or shrink depending on how, you know, how much exercise you do or how you eat diet, that sort of thing. But the number of those cells is kind of defined. And so if you've already been set up at that stage, if you're an obese child in your metabolic state is somewhat set at that point, it would, it would, um, stand to reason that the difficulties that you would have to then kind of change that, alter that. And, not to say that people can't, certainly they can, but maybe the challenge to do so becomes more difficult for people who grow up, you know, sedentary, who go through those kind of formative years, sedentary with a bad diet and kind of develop those early stages of metabolic syndrome. So absolutely to your point, you know, like, you know, if you get a patient at 18, 20, I mean, if you get a patient at 16, in some cases, some of the damage has already been done. And then you're, you're kind of fighting, you're pushing that rock up, up the hill for the rest of their life, trying to reverse some of those, those stages. And so, yeah, I mean, as a clinician, you know, the only, it's, it's hard to change or address things that you can't measure. And so uh, you want to have some sort of visibility of those factors. Uh, and of course, you know, EHRs and as they become, as they continue to pr- proliferate and they become more expansive and more systemic, really, and data starts to flow through those, you'll be able to get a, vis- you'll be able to gain visibility on those factors, but that's going to, that's uh, key to having a larger impact on people's overall trajectory of, of health in their, in, you know, over their lifespan. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and, and this idea of, you know, population health and value-based care, you know, in the past people attempted some of these things, right? <laughs> they worked for a specific population for a small period of time, but they weren't largely scalable or kind of extensible across. I mean, what do you, we all want value, right? We all want value-based yeah. healthcare, Right. We all want to be well, 
and get away from sick care, right? And focus on well care. Are these the right things? Are there other things that you see on the horizon that also look interesting or are necessary? Kind of pieces yeah. of the puzzle to solve? Yeah, a couple couple items on that. You know, so here, here's what worries me about the whole value. Like, you're right. So, well, let's just let's just go back to this. So, CMS and you know, our we'll just call our government healthcare programs have all been, they've been one big, big experiment since their their originations, right? And they continue, particularly with the CMMI, the Center for Medicaid, Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, which I think has been around since like the mid 2000, 2010, 2011, something like that, has really been an investment in the evolution of our government healthcare system, which I, when I say government healthcare system, I'm, I'm leaving out DHA. I'm just kind of more focusing on Medicare, Medicaid. But yeah. so they've they've basically been formed and they're funded to try to evolve the Medicare and Medicaid system to a more efficient value-based system, for lack of a better word, with with, great, with better outcomes. And so certainly there's innovation uh, taking place. Certainly there's investment in trying to find solutions. And like, in, and as you alluded to, like that just leads to constant iterations, constant trial and error to try to find the best thing. And nothing, you're right, nothing is really taken up. I think the, I think it was a review in like 2020 of the, um, I think it was New England Journal of Medicine. They kind of looked at CMMI's programs from 2010 to 2021, so about 10 or 11 years of CMMI data. And they kind of said, okay, well, listen, uh, costs haven't necessarily uh, gotten better, but they haven't gotten much worse. The outcomes of the patients haven't gotten uh, much better, but they haven't gotten worse. So basically, it sounds like what CMMI has essentially been able to do is just kind of plateau the 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 status quo in Medicare and Medicaid patients, right? They haven't made anything worse. They haven't made better. Better. It hasn't gotten more expensive. It hasn't really solved the problem of cost. Um, so if anything, it's just kind of wrangled it in. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah. So I think they're, they're we're still looking for solutions. To me, the there's two main main problems, and one of them is what we talked about is like you know in order to really be responsible for the outcome of your patients, you kind of have to have three 360 degree visibility of your patients because you need to know what they're doing, what they're engaged in. And then you have to have the tools to address whatever those needs are. I mean, I remember hearing recently on a podcast or something about Chen Med. I think they're based out of Philadelphia or Pennsylvania. They're like this accountable care organization. And, mm -hmm. you know, in order to ensure the, the, you know, they get, I don't want to say they make money off of, but, you know, they, they are all, they're incentivized towards the better outcome of their patients, both financially mm -hmm. and psychologically and, you know, spiritually, because I think they're a, a religious-based healthcare group. Mm -hmm. They want the best for their patients, which is the right thing. Um, and they also get paid better if they if for for better outcomes of their patients. And I think one of the things they did was like during a heat wave in Philadelphia, they went and bought air conditioners for their patients. Right? Like, I mean, think about that for a minute. Like, this is a doctor trained in internal medicine, has decided that we have a heat wave coming. Potentially, our patients are going to get hospitalized. If they get hospitalized, one, that's bad for the patients. It's bad for us. We love our patients. We don't want that to happen. Two, we, we you know that threatens our overall shared savings on those patients. So we're going to buy air conditioners to make sure that they don't, you know, we talk about writing, I mean, I've never heard of a doctor writing a prescription for an air conditioner, but in this case, there, there you go, right? So so to, to get back to the point, so taking care of patients, you need to have global 360 degree um, visibility on your patients and they're all the way up to what, what kind of their home living environmental situation is. Mm -hmm. And then you have to have the tools, right? I think it's fairly standard to reason that if there's a heat wave, an air conditioning could potentially protect you from uh, you know, the morbidity of a heat stroke or heat exhaustion and ended up in the hospital where it gets tricky for me. And what I struggle with kind of both in clinical practice as well in is just my, my 
interactions with the healthcare system on my own is what tools are we giving doctors to help them take care of their patients? And, you know, there's been a lot of controversy recently on particularly surrounding opioids and different medications and the pharmaco healthcare industrial complex and, Mm -hmm. you know, the hijacking of evidence-based medicine by corporate entities who stand to benefit by some might say influencing, some might say manipulating doctors' practices. That's what I worry about. You know, like we have this reliance as doctors. We think the best thing for our patients, the best outcome for our patients is to follow evidence-based medicine. And yet, if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have gladly told you based off of, you know, the published works that I was being handed and the interactions and conversations I had at conferences that, oh yes, any patient who uh, undergoes an appendectomy needs 90 days of opiates after their appendectomy, right? And we now know that, you know, I think it was last year or the year before was the first time um, since uh, since the 1950s that the or the 1940s that the um, average lifespan of an American went down. And part of that, of course, part of that was attributed to COVID, but the other part was mm-hmm. opiate overdoses. And so here we are, I, I even have a quote here that I say, so, mm-hmm. you know, value-based care is an effort to reward um, physicians for helping patients improve their health, reduce effects and incidence of chronic disease, and live healthier lives in an evidence-based way. Evidence-based way. We Doctors, we rely on the evidence to treat our patients. And if we're not getting correct evidence from mm-hmm. you know, our, our, our uh, academia, from you know these corporations that circulate healthcare information, if we're not getting the right information, we could potentially be harming our patients. And, and I'm, I'm reminded of a quote I heard recently. It's something like in the last 30 years, something up to, and I, I might be butchering the numbers here, something up to like 70% of all pharmaceuticals that have been developed in the last 30 years have actually proven to be more harmful than helpful. You know, like, wow. don't call me on those numbers, but like, it was something that I heard recently. I, I, it, it's shocking. It wasn't so, 1%. <laughs> yeah. It was a right. very large number. It was, it was, yeah, it was, it was, you know, directionally, I think those numbers are right. Um, and I think it was from Asim Maholtra, who's, uh, I think he's a cardiologist from the UK. I think it was his quote on a, on a recent podcast, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, if, if as a doctor, if you're going to be responsible for the overall health and welfare of your patients and their outcomes in the way that these value-based care models are suggesting, you need to have tools to be able to do that. And I worry that, um, you know, that a large result of the rising costs in healthcare and the poor outcomes is that we're giving people expensive things that aren't actually helping them. So a lot to unpack in there. (laughs) Yes, you you got me going, Maureen. You got me going. (laughs) That's good. That's good. Uh, Yeah. So 360 degree view tools. There's a lot, but 360 degree view tools and is it, isn't it evidence-based medicine, right? Yeah. We all rely on, so maybe I'll start in reverse. Uh, (laughs) When I, when you say evidence-based medicine, obviously I think, you know, National Library of Medicine, PubMed, you know, peer-reviewed journals, uh, and, and then to simplify the like mass amount of information publications, the clinical guidelines that are formulated by different committees, sometimes within an organization like the American College of Cardiology or the American Heart Association or collaboratively, you know, the AHA, the ACC and 
um, the Heart Rhythm Society get together and write something sure. on AFib, for example. Right. Um, and they do rate. I always appreciated the fact that they rated the level of evidence, right? So that you have a sense of how strong the evidence is in support of some particular thing they're putting forth. Right. Um, but and there, it's interesting because there is, at least in my experience, we, I mean, we've never tried to influence the guidelines. We have been aware who writes them, right? We've tried to work with those people on larger scale. Once we had things proven in smaller set studies, we've tried to involve some of those people in some of the larger trials so that we were more from a, are we measuring the right endpoints, right? Are we doing the right tasks? Are we measuring the right endpoints? Are we, with obviously the hope of eventually getting, you know, having sufficient evidence to be considered, to be in the guidelines. Um, Are you talking about, are you speaking, when when you're talking about questioning the evidence and the evidence-based guidelines, are you talking about that or are you talking about something else? No, no, I'm talking about that. And I don't want to, you know, (laughs) Maureen, I thought this was going to be a happy podcast. And I think we're going to talk about nice, (laughs) you know, lovely things and maybe look at some cat videos. Um, You know, I don't mean to be- No cats. I am (laughs) super, super allergic to cats. (laughs) Right, right, right. Um, So, you know, I don't want to be a purveyor of doom and gloom here, but, but let's talk about this for a second, just to make sure that we're, that that we're being faithful to the science and what we know. So a couple of um, old terms and, and sayings I'm going to throw out to you. And I think this one has been bandied about quite a bit. So, and we all heard this when we, all of us doctors graduate med school, I think we've heard this in, in some way, shape or form since graduating med school. Uh, I think it was a former Dean of Harvard medical school said to a graduating class, like, you know, welcome to the science of medicine. 50% of what we taught you here is absolutely false. And the worst part about that is we don't know what 50%, right? So keep that in mind. Yeah. And then take that onto, you know, there's a Dr. Ioannidis, or I'm butchering the last time, Ioannidis out of Stanford, who published a study in the early 2000s where he talked about how journal articles, which is evidence-based medicine, you know, we, evidence-based medicine is basically what can we derive mm-hmm. from the journals and the publications, the National Library of Science, et cetera, of the, um, collections of those articles published, what, what kind of data insights can we derive from them? And he, uh, he's a very brilliant data scientist, a physician, and he looked at it over a certain number of years. And he said up to half of medical literature published is wrong, maybe more. And to a great degree, that which is wrong, it's, it's more likely to be wrong if it is influenced by any type of financial investment or windfall from a corporation. Sure. So, so, so first of all, even before corporate influence in medicine, we were already saying, listen, 50% of what we teach you in med school is probably wrong. And we don't know what 50%. And then in the era of evidence-based medicine, you know, we have doctors like Dr. Anitas who were warning us that even potentially half or more than half of what's published, you know, the evidence, the science of medicine, potentially over half of that is wrong and could be harmful. So we have to be very careful with, with how we're utilizing the science, you know, the evidence, um, where it's coming from. And, and I think it gives us a little bit of a peek into the dangers of AI. How so? Like this. So mm-hmm. you mentioned the guidelines. The guidelines are, are nothing more than digestible, easily delivered insights that have been collated and collected by a small group of physicians 
essentially who are reading language. They go on the internet, they go through the libraries, they flip through the encyclopedias and through the journal articles. They collate all that information. They make it into digestible pieces of data insight. That's essentially AI, just a human form of AI. It's, mm -hmm. it's, we don't call it AI, right? Because it's not artificial. It's actually humans doing this. That's what they're doing. But the insights we get, the guidelines are based off of evidence. The evidence comes from journals. The journals are published, produced, funded in many cases you know, by corporations. By advertising. Form, right, right. Advertising. Right, it's largely from, right, corporations. They can be influenced. You know, some of the leading scientists who publish the most works on statins, for example, mm -hmm. and shown that they are influenced in some ways by the, by the medical session. And I mean, I, the, the biggest indictment of this, you know, bar none, I mean, you, I, there's probably several documentaries and books written about now is the opiate crisis, right? Like, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, with the Purdue Pharma, they basically found one article in one journal from the 1970s that said, opiates aren't addictive. They took that one journal, it wasn't even a journal article. I think it was like a, a statement piece or a case study or something like that. And they basically, yeah. Yeah. And they basically just started floating that around in their sales pitches and said, listen, opiates aren't addictive. Oh, and if you're, if you're pa if your patients are experiencing what appear to be addiction symptoms, that's actually pseudo addiction. It means that they need higher doses. And we kind of bought a hook, line, and sinker. Um, so that, that's the danger, right? So, wow. and that's the danger with AI. If AI is not, you know, this is like computer programming 101, right? Like input and output. If you don't put in, if you don't have good input, you're going to have bad output. So mm -hmm. the information that goes into these AI models and the information that go into these guidelines, we ha has to be trustworthy, uh, verifiable, um, and, and uh, you know, reliable, uh, high fidelity information. Yeah, you make a you make a great point because there's a lot of I know when we when we read articles or when I've had conversations in the past with physicians about them, um, they're always more cautious about, well, the early data, you know, is trending towards, right? They're they stay away from definitive statements until you have the 3,000 patient multi-center randomized prospective trial, and then it becomes a bit more definitive, right? Yeah. Um, but all these smaller studies are are stepping stones, and there are somebody somewhere probably came up with an algorithm for this already. But you look at the dirt, right? You look at the people who were a part of the study. You look to see if there was any funding given. You look to see which institution, which which journal, you know, how many patients, the n, the p values, yeah. that right. There are there are indicators that give us some sense of directionality for, I hesitate to say trustworthiness, but. Um, yeah. I mean, that's the whole, the in whole that regard. Yeah. Yeah. But how do you, how do you, yeah. So I suppose if humans can do it, AI could do it, but it depends what they're taught and how they're taught yeah. it. And yeah. if they can discern, you know, any of these guidelines will always say, uh, we looked at, I'm just going to use even numbers, a thousand, we looked at a thousand articles that fell under the following keyword search. Uh, so many got tossed for this level, you know, not enough. And what the number of people weren't high enough, they got tossed for this, they got tossed for the other thing, right? And call it down. I suppose if they have a process, the AI could have a process, but. Yeah, I mean, it's all going to be about what's been, I, mean, I think some of the, I just read reading an article on Substack this morning, uh, mm. I think the author was Ty West or Tyler West, a former Naval Special Forces operator um, who went to a defense contracting conference. And he talks about how like these new 
AI software platforms that are being sold to the military that, and how they're supposed to be able to discern between like the spreading of disinformation versus correct information and mm-hmm. the AI models that, you know, what they pick up is, is disinformation or correct information. And what is all based on what you input into them. And if they're drawing from the larger pool of what is the internet, whatever people put into that pool is what's going to get drawn. So if misinformation is flooded mm-hmm. onto the internet, then the AI model is only going to produce more and more misinformation, which is a danger. And another thing you, you remind me of is my early days of in medical school, like being on rounds. Um, I remember it was great, uh, a great quote. One of the residents, I think it was on pediatrics or something, they asked, you know, she was explaining why she thought a certain treatment protocol for a patient was the, the right treatment protocol. And um, you know, one of the attendings appropriately said, well, what evidence are you basing this on? And she said, uh, well, I don't remember if it's reader digest level uh, data or if this was actually Journal of American Pediatrics data. Anyway, I got the data from somewhere and that's what I'm basing it on. But she makes a good point, right? And is that a lot of medical data, Reader's Digest and Newsweek and Time and, you know, MSNBC, they all, and Fox News, they all produce data and it's all out there on the internet. So as these AI systems are going to be sourcing this data, are we going to know whether it's Reader's Digest data or if it's from the National Academy of Sciences? Um, And that's, that's, that is absolutely key. You want to know the level of, of fidelity of your data and the, the other thing, it just reminds me of kind of one of the frustrations when I came out of um, medical school. There's two frustrations I think that every doctor experiences on a social stand from, uh, stamp, from a social standpoint after becoming a doctor. One is watching medical melodramas on TV and how inaccurate they are. That's the first like realization. You're like, yeah, this does not, uh, you know, the amount of drama that occurs in a, hosp- a TV hospital in one episode probably would account for the amount of drama I saw in 10 years of my career. Um, but the other thing is like, you know, the, the constant sound bites you hear in the morning news or on the radio of, mm-hmm. oh, doctors uh, have now found that eating one Twinkie a day is actually beneficial for your health. <laughs> what is it? And then you go, you go look at that study or you go look at that publication and, you know, it's like one data point from one research group sets in, you know, in some corner of the United States, maybe not, maybe some, some corner of the world. And the, the, because it's such a catchy tagline, the media mm-hmm. has taken it and, and, um, you know, spread it broadly. And, and then people look at it and they say, oh, well, yeah, you know, one, one tweak is actually good for me. Or, you know, the whole, the whole diet Coke thing, you know, the headline diet Coke can cause cancer, you know, because, and then you go to look at this, it's like one study in like 10 mice showed that, yes. <laughs> that the, you know, like, it's like, you want to tell people, yeah, they also found out that, uh, doing research on lab rats causes cancer, you know, <laughs> as opposed to just the diet Coke. So that's the first thing. So to your point, one study means nothing to a doctor. You know, one study usually mm-hmm. is useless. You need, of course, multiple studies, preferably the, uh, double randomized, uh, clinical trials, et cetera. And then you need multiple of them. And basically all that's even giving you still is just one data point that you have to collect with multiple data points before you have any type of reliable information upon which you can build guidelines or confidently recommend treatment protocols. Um, but yeah, this one piece of data, particularly if it's coming from Reader's Digest, usually useless. So I want to unwind that a little bit. Because uh, one of the things I talk to, that I suggest to people when they're getting into a field that perhaps they didn't understand before is to find the key societies, find the guidelines and read. Like completely as a marketing person and completely consume that. So did you start to understand what's happening, where some of the comorbidities are? It gives you a, it's a short, 
well, maybe some people wouldn't call it short, but in my mind, it's a short, deep dive into kind of what's happening in that particular field, like atrial fibrillation or high blood pressure, you know, yeah, hypertension, et cetera. Yeah, um, I think the, we, we had tools for this. You know, we had it starting around the mid to late 2000s. We started to, or the, you know, the, the aughts, like 2010, 2011, 2012, there was a pr proliferation of uh, software platforms that just like digested this information and gave it to you a nice readable, uh, up-to-date mm -hmm. is what WebMD, right? We're one of the original ones. And then up-to-date is another mm -hmm. big one that's used uh, yeah. heavily in hospitals. Yes, I tend to find those aren't quite, quite enough, <laughs> generally speaking. Uh, sure. So one of the things I want to go back to because I, I find it really interesting is this idea that, well, not idea. I think we could probably prove this if we studied it, uh, that I'll say marketing people, the media, marketing, PR, kind of we can throw all those people in the bucket for the moment, including myself, uh, that there's a tendency to go and find the most outrageous, like you said, you know, one Twinkie a day is good for you. Yeah, uh, most outrageous thing, no matter whether the data makes any sense or not, and what what I've also tended to see, and I'm curious if you've seen this, is if you, t number one, no one cites the article. There's usually, it's very rare there's a link to the original data. So you have to go try to, I have to go try to figure out, like, what was published in the last month? What was, what could they possibly have pulled? And usually when I find the article, they've pulled not, they're so far away from kind of the main point of the study to begin with. And they found some like small piece that wasn't even an endpoint to pull out. And then the writer pulls it out and talks about it. But then someone else is in charge at these large media corporations of mm. titling, right, to get engagement. So they A-B test certain titles. And if those aren't quite working, they'll go back the next day or in a couple of hours and tweak the titles. And so what happens is that there's this drift that happens. And so sometimes I will click on them because I'm like, that, that's absurd. I wonder how far away it is from what was actually studied. Uh, and I think there's a, yeah, I don't know how we fix that, but. Yeah, it's, disconnect. It, it, it's it's wrong incentives, problem. right? It's the wrong incentives, yeah. right? You're incentivizing people for engagement and not for some kind of ethical behavior that they should be following, whether it's marketing and media people or other folks. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you've kind of, you've kind of diagnosed the disease of, of mass media, right? Like everything, you <laughs> I don't want to say everything, but like you have to get attention, right? Like you have to get clicks. So the clickbaity mm -hmm. sound bites are what are going to get them, get the most clicks and that, you know, medicine, uh, fortunately, unfortunately, medicine is not immune to this, you know, medicine, you know, the, the, there are medical, um, sections or healthcare sections in every major newspaper. There are healthcare, obviously websites, podcasts, um, you know, influencers. And in order to get those clicks, in order to get those, those views, you've got to have the catchy term. And so is it going to be catchier to say, Hey, listen, diet and exercise can actually increase your health span and your lifespan. Is that really going to get that many clicks <laughs> or is saying something like eating a bucket of butter can actually improve your mental capacity? I mean, I'm going to be curious about the bucket of butter one. I'm going to click on it every time. Be like, what? I love butter. Let me go see. What, let me go see this. Um, who said? Who said I can do that? I want right, to know yeah. why. Yeah, and it's and it's yeah. so funny because 
as a doctor, you get you get bombarded, but particularly by family members and friends, right? You get bombarded by this stuff. They'll send you something like, "Hey, did you see this article?" And of course, they probably didn't even read the whole article, or, or you know, if they did, they just skimmed it. Um, and then you go actually do the deeper dive into the science or to the medical, you know, the, the physician that they quoted in the article, and realize that it's all, you know, bogus. I want, I'm yeah, it's interesting because there's, I don't think there's a way to unwind the incentives are kind of baked into media at this point, except for some of those that hold themselves to a slightly higher standard. <laughs> but a lot of it, the incentives are baked in incorrectly. And I think what was interesting about, one of the things I thought about when you were talking about the, um, I don't know if it was value-based purchasing, but it was the group in Philly and it got hot yeah. and they were trying to manage, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the patients in the best way to keep them out of the ER and urgent care, et cetera. Uh, and they bought them air conditioners. And the first thing I thought of is what were the incentives that drove that behavior? Because if, if you can unwind it and figure out what those incentives were, that's a pretty, right? It's, beha it's behavior, right? It's how do people behave? And people usually yeah. behave in response to incentives of some sort, right? Their family will do better, can buy a bigger house, they can, you know. Yeah. Are we talking, in that case, in that scenario, are we talking about the incentives of the patient or the incentives of the doctors to go buy the air conditioners? The, the doctors, yeah. The incentives for yeah. the physicians to understand that they have this kind of broader picture to manage and therefore they were thinking more broadly, right? And more holistically about how to manage this patient as opposed to writing scripts and scheduling surgeries and running yeah. tests. Well, let's, let's, I'm going to try to be a little bit rabbinical about it um, and, and give everybody the benefit of the doubt. So humans are creatures of incentives. We generally know from evolutionary psychology, what are the incentives that drive human beings? Um, and particularly the economics of what drive human beings, you know, it's, it's sex, money, power, kind of like the top, some of the top three, uh, mm -hmm. sex, money, power, influence, um, you know, res respect of your peers, things like that, but really sex, money, power. And so if you look at, um, and I will say this, I will give, you know, being rabbinical, I'll give Chen Med the, the benefit of the doubt. They're also a religious based, um, medical mm -hmm. organization. And so mm -hmm. I, I, I assume that there is a religious incentive as well for them to do right by their patients in addition mm -hmm. to the professional um, incentive to do right by their patients. And we all, all, uh, all of us doctors, we do ascribe to the, the Hippocratic Oath. And uh, you know, I think most of us take it seriously. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's also the financial incentive, right? So when I look at that, that scenario, and I, I don't want to imply anything, I don't know all the data points to it. I just heard about it you know, on a podcast, but um, mm -hmm. as I understand it, the way it works, because they're in a they're in an accountable care organization, accountable, meaning they are mm -hmm. held accountable financially, I believe, um, if their patients end up in the hospital. So if their patients end up in the hospital, that's very expensive. And if they if their patients end up in the hospital, they are going to become responsible for a portion of that charge, or they'll lose part of their um, bundled payments to paying for that um, that hospital admission. So it essentially amounts to a loss of money for the practice if their patients end up in the hospital. And I can, I can assure you right now, having worked in hospitals for the last 15 years of my life, I can assure you right now that that hospital stay, whether it's one day or five days, is going to be substantially more expensive 
than a uh, carrier um, swamp AC that you can put in somebody's window. It'll probably be exponentially more expensive, right? So it just makes financial sense to buy them the AC, prevent heat stroke, heat exhaustion, um, and uh, and prevent the, that, that hospital admission. So I think there's a there's a financial incentive. There's a career you know, psychological incentive, you know, you're a professional mm-hmm. incentive being a doctor, you're, you are trained and you ascribe to a Hippocratic oath that, mm-hmm. um, makes that the right thing to do. And then I think in the case of Chen Med, there's a religious, a, you know, a Judeo-Christian, uh, ethos that they ascribe mm-hmm. to that also has them want, you know, there's an incentive for them to do the best by mankind, their fellow man. So, um, mm-hmm. I think they're doing the, uh, the right thing. And I, I, I kind of look, you know, in a weird way after hearing, even after hearing that story, I was so inspired about that. I try to look for like just little ways that I could do things like that, like going down to my local bagel shop and just saying, Hey, don't throw out the bagels at the end of the day. Let me just take them and hand them out to homeless people. Right. And like, hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, get the fed. And then I realized, you know, 50% of the homeless people in my neighborhood are overweight. And then I was like, well, this doesn't make sense. So <laughs> maybe I should be giving them bagels. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Uh, I don't mean I. Yeah, I don't mean to laugh, but I think yeah. That there's a lot. There's a lot in there, um, right. and I think I'll, I'll back up from the the bagel story here for a minute. And uh, I think the idea of lining up economic incentives with right. We we've known right whether it's fee for service, value based care, or something. Right. There's there's the the you know the need to get the clinical part right. Right practice good medicine, help people get well, et cetera, or, you know, prevent them from getting sick, right? One or the other. Uh, so there's, there's that kind of clinical piece of it. And then there's also, there's an economic piece, right? Whether it's how the impairs decide what's covered and what's not covered uh, or how to reimburse or which, in which settings to reimburse something. Um, so there's always been that kind of clinical economic piece uh, I think what's interesting is when you switch the when you switch the economic piece to carrying more hope to preventing certain things from happening, it switches the actions and what people do, right? Um, as opposed to paying people for them happening. So, I mean, we know this, right? So, if a surgeon does a surgery, they get paid X, and the facility in which they do it gets paid Y, right? But they sure, don't. Yeah. Surgeons don't get paid you know, X, if they prevent a surgery and the facility does not get paid Y if they prevent a surgery. So the incentives are, they're different. Yeah. They're different. And so, so. like, if, if you look at, I'm reminded of a book that somebody in my life once forced me to read. It was called Eat, Pray, Love. I think it became a movie oh. uh, at some point, right? And I, I'm reminded mm-hmm. of this part of the book. There's one thing that I don't remember much of the book, but I do remember one part. I think she was in Italy or something and she's having a conversation with this Italian bloke that she met there. And he says something like, you know, every city in Italy can be described by a name, uh, by one word. And like Rome, the word is sex. I don't know. Uh, Florence, the word is art. Um, you know, uh, Pisa, the world is leaning building, whatever, you know, but they're like each, each city can be defined by, by a word or two words. Um, and I'm reminded what I think of healthcare if I over, at least in the early 2000s and the last, let's say 15 years or so, if I had to use one word to describe healthcare, the word would be volume. Mm. It, you know, surgeons, you know, during up in my surgical training, we were rated on our volume, much in the same way that a pilot is rated on his flight hours, right? How many surgeries have you done? 
those mm-hmm. surgeons who can amass the most amount of surgeries in their respective field are going to be regarded as the best because they've done 10,000 gallbladders, 10,000 thyroids, whatever the case may mm-hmm. be, right? The astronomical numbers. That's how you're rated. And to get those numbers, you need volume. You need patients. You can't turn away somebody's uh, who's got a, a minor case of cholecystitis, which might actually resolve itself and it may never reappear again, or there's a 20% likelihood that it will reappear in the next 10 years. You can't turn them away and have them go home because that's a gallbladder that you could take out and just up your numbers. So there's that volume. And then the, on the, on the, maybe not on the opposite hand, but on the same hand flipped over is the volume of the money, right? Like the hospitals mm-hmm. are trying to keep that throughput going, keep that volume up because each patient, as sadly as this sounds or is, represents a revenue source. And mm-hmm. so you want to get that volume in so that you can get the payment from those patients. And so there were all these, as I was going through training, you know, spend, and, and being in the military, spending time at MGH, it was like the same, whether I was at MGH or whether I was at Walter Reed, it was like, we need patient throughput. We need it so our doctors mm-hmm. can get skilled. We need it so that we have these volume numbers for our quality metrics to show that we've done X number of cases. Therefore we're, you know, we're, we're proficient at it. And then we need it for the money, um, the money mm-hmm. aspect. And so the word was volume get the volume through the transition now or what CMS is trying to do is get away from that volume and that Mm -hmm. fee for service and that swiping that, that need to swipe the credit card, go away from volume to value, go away from volume to better outcome. Now they want to transition the word, the word for my entire career in medicine has been volume. They want to make the word either value or better outcome. Maybe two words, better outcome volume, value or outcomes. And so, um, to make that happen that you're right, the incentives are going to have to be realigned and there's going to have to be a, I mean, you know, an almost 180 degree shift in the mentality of how patients are taken care of, how systems are set up. Cause right now they're set up for, for volume mm-hmm. and fee for service. And, you know, right. an EHR in many cases, an EHR is nothing more than a, than a very fancy cash register. And, you know, when they teach us doctors how to write our notes in there, they teach us all the buttons we need to push to make sure that we get paid or the hospital gets paid. Even, you know, I was in the military. Right. Was, yeah. We don't, we don't, we're not even working on pants. We, they, they still had to, we still had to click those buttons. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. We're D. De- yeah. So solving healthcare here today. <laughs> gargantuan problem. But, yeah. A gargantuan problem. But I, I think, yeah, when you, when you're talking about the, you know, the, the Chen, I don't know if it's a Chen group, but that group in Philly, um, and buying the buying air conditioners that you heard about on the podcast, I I just thought incentives, and and I'll say from the from the med tech side of things, I've seen there's nothing like setting up an incentive program for salespeople, right? And there's a new one every year, and it gets tweaked usually every quarter. Uh, there's nothing like setting it up and launching it and watching what actually happens. <laughs> and uh, I've, I've had input into those. I've never developed the entire thing myself, right? I came up through engineering and product management and marketing. Um, but I've definitely seen times where they didn't reward, you know, you see very quickly where people are going to spend their time based on where they've realized, hey, you're rewarding me to do this new thing, but that new thing is going to take 10 times more time than doing this thing. So I'd rather do more of this and less of that because the, like the volumes and the numbers, right? If I can get 10 of these and it takes me a a fifth of the time that it takes me to get 10 of these, 
than or sell 10 of these in 10 of it, right? Then they're going to do the one that takes less time. They will always be efficient with their time because what I've seen that salespeople are driven, right? Are, they're incentivized. Let's put it this way. They're incentivized. I want to speak to their behavior as a group. Yeah, yeah. They're incentivized to drive sales generally, right? And to drive volumes. Sure. And there are all the other pieces that are in that part of that incentive program. I mean, it's not all just selling stuff in dollars, but a big piece of it is. And I think in listening to you talk, it certainly seems that perhaps CMS set up the wrong incentive program. Yeah. I mean, I think they, they set up the incentive program based on what they could make happen. You know, like I said, in right. order to do a value-based system, you need to have a global visibility of your patient because, you know, you can't, you can't try to link up the incentive. Look at it this way. Now that we have a little bit greater visibility of our patients and we're collecting data in the, you know, the, the, the interwebs and we're able to source this data and give it back to physicians, think about it this way. If I can now get data on what my patient's blood sugar level is in real time and I get updates on my computer from their, you know, little widget that's on their phone or whatever the case may be. I now will know when my patient is overeating or is not eating the right things uh, or is indulging a little bit too much. And then I can, I can intervene. I mean, I guess in theory, I could intervene right there in real time if I wanted to. So let's say that rather than doctors being incentivized for providing care and, and swiping that, cat, that, that credit card on the EMR and clicking all the buttons for like, yes, I did this. Yes, I did this. Yes, I did this to the 40 things that you supposedly did in your 30 minute patient visit, which are now going to give you your income. Let's say we now said, we're going to, we're going to pay you for every point of BMI uh, reduction mm -hmm. below obesity level for your patient population, something like that. I mean, that's an oversimplistic mm -hmm. way of doing it, but let's just say sure. we, we started to do something like that, or we're going to pay you for every point of reduction in blood pressure um, that you, you uh, score for your patients, or we're going to pay you, um, for, uh, you know, miles that your patients can walk now, um, or, or flights of stairs that your patients can walk to can measure their cardiovascular, um, mm -hmm. health. You know, if we started incentivizing those things, and then we now have the ability to gate, to garner that data, to obtain that data, you know, how, how, how you know, when are our patients elevating their heart rate, uh, i.e. when are they doing exercise? What's their blood sugar levels? When are they overeating? What's their weight? What's their, uh, BMI? What's their body, uh, composition? We can get that data. We can source it. We can immediately upload it to the web and the doctors can be given that data. And so can the payers and the payers can see very quickly whose patients are getting better and who, whose patients aren't. Mm -hmm. um, and so armed with that data, I think that, I mean, I think that was the linchpin that was missing uh, that CMMI and, and CMS hasn't had mm -hmm. until now, because you mm -hmm. need that 360 degree visibility in order to be able to follow the appropriate incentives and the appropriate incentives are health, not uh, the amount of care delivered, you know, not the amount of swipes mm -hmm. or the amount of things you did in the EMR. It's what is the, what, what are the metrics of our, the, you know, the health metrics of each individual patient? Right. And I just, yeah. And I just want to be clear. I'm not trying to take out or poke, you know, poke CMS or anything like that. We all do the best we can at the, the time at which, yeah. you know, in the time in which we exist. Right. So we're kind of turning it over, but I'm just trying to kind of, I don't want to say disarticulate it. Right. But disaggregate yeah. it to try to figure out what might actually move the needle because, you know, we had this, we had some experiments 
a few decades past, you know, HMOs, this other stuff that, yeah, some work better than others. Um, I mean, it, it, it's the same. It, it, I guess it's analogous like education, right? Like the, the teaching yeah. of our children. You know, we, we have this idea, you know, I'm born and raised Californian. And we have this idea, this was very prominent in California, that like we're going to start paying teachers. I think this was the, during the WH Bush administration. We're going to start paying teachers based on the performance of their students. Yeah. Is it reasonable to expect a teacher who has a child with them, you know, not even just one child, they have 30 children with them for four to six hours a day, depending on the grade. But then the remainder of that child's life is spent outside of the classroom, of which the teacher has zero visibility. And they can be doing anything. They could be, you know, uh, playing video games all day or reading misinformation on the internet. Um, and then we're going to make that singular teacher responsible for the intelligence outcome of that child. That that you can't do <laughs> unless that teacher has 360 degree visibility on what that children that child is doing all day and the ability to intervene at any given moment. You can't really make it's, it's not reasonable to make that teacher responsible for that child's cognitive abilities. In the same way, it's not it's not reasonable to try to pay doctors on the outcome of their patients if we don't have the ability to see what they're doing at all times and the ability to kind of intervene. Affect it, yeah. Right. Put down the corn dog. Put down the chili dog. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the tools, right? The tools, right. like right, you yeah. said, the tools that you need to be able to do that, kind of in an efficient yeah. and effective way. To your point, so CMS has done the best they 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 could with the tools that they had, but now, like you know, we're on this cusp of this new healthcare revolution where you know, like. Amazon is now investing heavily in healthcare. I mean, they're saying mm-hmm. that healthcare startups are going to be the next Fang companies. You know, the dot the the in the dot com revolution. Um, you know, the the Netflix, the Facebooks, the Teslas um, are all you look. You know, look at the data; they're all uh, struggling right now. And so, it's, it, some have proposed that the next wave of major innovation and uh, market activity will be in the healthcare space, which I'm sure will be, this, this is a good news for all your listeners. I, I, I <laughs> promise Maureen that there'd be something good that I say. Let's... <laughs> that, well, that's, I mean, I think that's great. And I mean, I've seen that, you know, there's been a sea change since I started, you know, in med tech and a lot of amazing, amazing, uh, inventions and evolutions in care and, and all of this. And we, you know, the goal is, it's the continuous improvement, right? We start where we are and can we, can 1% better? Can we 1% better every day so that we're 365% better at the end of the year? So and the same holds true for reimbursement or marketing or that. It's, you know, it's a non-vegetarian phrase of the eating the elephant one bite at a time. I don't know what the vegan version of that would be. Yeah, I mean, I'll say like it, working working with Pearl Health, you know, as, as, as being that it's a startup, I've I've kind of got a an insider's view of rapid innovation, rapid um, iteration. So mm-hmm. I'll tell this for anybody, you know, anybody else in the military who's going to be getting out, particularly the special forces guys who are used to very rapid, you know, dynamic and rapidly evolving spaces. You know, startups. What has surprised me is how fast they work. You know, you. Basically, one person says, you know, we should, before they can even get the sentence out, you have 10 people who are already doing that thing. And it's done <laughs> before they're even finished the sentence. It's crazy. It's crazy how fast they work. I remember, you know, I could ask when I, you know, in the military, I could ask like, hey, we need more toilet paper. It could take three months for us to get more toilet paper rolls that are building. But like at a, at a startup, you know, you say, I want this, you know, X 
software update made to this platform. And before the, you're done with the sentence, somebody's already done it. And they're like, hey, will this work? It's amazing. <laughs> um, it's completely, uh, that's credit to the engineers and data scientists at Pearl Health. But it's also, mm -hmm. I think just, I've heard that that's just the way startups work. They're just fast and very innovative. And so that iteration process happens very quickly. Um, whereas for other organizations, particularly government organizations, it just takes a long time. That iteration cycle is very slow. Yeah, yeah understood. Yeah, start, startups are amazing that way. And that kind sure. of, the people have that attitude and that risk. How should I say it? They don't have an aversion to risk. As much. So for example, I worked in the San Francisco Bay Area for eight years, and it's just a very specific ecosystem of beliefs around, there are lots and lots of, right? Lots and lots of um, med tech startup, med tech, health tech, digital health, et cetera. And so the expectation was never, I want to turn this in, you know, take this job and turn into a 20 year career. It's, I want to grow this fast, do the best thing, talk to all the right people, make this something, uh, and then get it sold. You know, to one of the large billion dollar companies, generally some IPO that's pretty rare. Uh, and then go on and do the next thing. And I think that makes that startup. That's why I love startups. Uh, yeah. It, yeah. There is that energy and that, dyna that dynamism and not I'm buried under 10 tons of bureaucracy. And so I can't move uh, yeah. without learning 10 people that I'm going to take a step to the left. So for sure. And I, I think for any of the listeners, you know, we talked about med tech vets. So for any of military people who are looking to, you know, build their second life, repot themselves um, as in the startup world, uh, I will issue both the uh, warning as well as the, I don't know, the invitation um, to say that, you know, you go to the startup world, like things are going to move very, very quickly. Just be prepared to um, be the person that the minute somebody says, I need that you are on uh, you're on fire building whatever it is that that needs to be built. Um, so th it's going to things move very quickly, and you have to be prepared to harness your energy and move at least with the pace of the startup, if not try to be a little bit faster. Which I think for a lot of military people, particularly your special operators and special warfare folks, I think that's what excites them, and that they I think they they tend to flow very nicely into that type of environment. Um, uh, you know, on the, the other hand, you go to a startup, you know, you're going to work above your pay grade, below your pay grade, across your pay grade, like you're going to be expected to do all levels of, of work. And so, um, that's one of the, you can't, you can't come in with any type of ego, like you have to be prepared to do just about anything and everything to, to complete mission. Uh, and so I think that's the, that's the corollary with being in the military is that it's, it's mission above all else, mission accomplishment, mission completion and mission accomplishment, mission completion quickly. Uh, like get it done and get it done fast, uh, which which has been one of the more exciting aspects uh, for me working with a startup uh, to, to to make that transition. It's just been, um, I just I, I've never I've really never seen anything else quite like it. That's that that is great uh, information and a great kind of call out to people about what it is and uh, the what makes it really fun and what also makes it very challenging, right? Yeah. So you need to be ready to kind of drink from a fire hose and run. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Admit. While you're on fire yourself, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There you go. All right. Or at least your like attitude and focus is on fire. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
So yeah, we've covered a lot of ground pop from population health and tools and 360 degree holistic view. Uh, one, la one last kind of serious question. So this, this 360 degree kind of holistic view and being able to manage or, or intervene or provide education, whatever the appropriate um, response is to try to um, modify behavior to achieve, you know, so the patient's healthier at the end of the day to achieve health. Uh, at the end of the day, a lot of that's going to take place outside, as you said, kind of outside of the outside of the facilities or the environments or outside of seeing the position. Uh, at the MedTech conference, I think it was Alyssa Lynch who said that 70% of healthcare takes place outside of, you know, hospitals and clinical environments and that. And with that in mind, what are the, as we think about the home and needing some of that data, do you have any sense for what we should be thinking about or how that might happen? Or um, I think particularly the home is a really interesting one that a lot of people are talking about right now, right? CMS had their hospital to home waiver during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and early, I will say early, small studies, early data appear to show <laughs> that uh, ER readmits uh, readmits, e ER visits are reduced, patients are happier, this kind of thing, recovering yeah. in their home it, in, in a certain group of appropriate, right, appropriate yeah. situations where that, yeah, not ICU yeah. patients. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I remember, you know, uh, during my surgical training, you know, we would try to get patients out of the hospital as quickly as we could. Um, and I remember there being, I don't remember the exact data, but we we would always quote data when we were sending people, patients home that like you know for every day they're in the hospital there's an increase thirty percent increase in the risk of a uh, hospital based uh, complication, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So for whatever reason patients just do better when they're in their home their own home. To on that on that same point you know when we discharge patients to make sure that they don't get re, you know readmitted I remember we'd have to ask a lot of patients just questions that I never thought I would ask as as a doctor you know like. Um, do you have a lot of cords in your house? Do you have a lot of rugs? Do you have a lot of stairs, mm -hmm. right? Cause trip hazards and, you know, do you have an AC? Do you have climate mm -hmm. control? Um, do you have pets? Do you have, uh, appropriate pest control in your building or your home to make sure that there's not infestations mm -hmm. and, you know, um, uh, so yeah, I mean, all, and all of that stuff kind of incorporates, right? So you, like to your point when you're asking like, well, what, how, how can we collect this data? What, what data should we be collecting on our patients? There's all these environmental factors, right? Like I'd love to, mm -hmm. I'd love to know my, my nest, my nest, uh, uh, temperature control thing here tells me what the temperature in my house all constantly, it's on my phone. I can look at my phone at all times and I can look right there and it's a constant 73 degrees, just like I like it. Right. In theory, Doctors could get, why, why shouldn't doctors be able to get that information for their patients? What is the temperature in their home, particularly doing a mat during a massive heat wave or during mm -hmm. a, um, or doing a, a, a cold, you know, like snowpocalypse, which I experienced in, I think 2015 in, in, in Massachusetts. Um, so there's things like that, the environmental data. Um, and I mean, you can, I mean, you can imagine how, how deep you can go in that, right? Like what, what airborne toxins are they being exposed to? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, what, what other elements in their home, you know, what's the level of asbestos or, um, you know, they even have like meters that test for like the bacteria in the air. You, you can get really deep on that stuff. So just know like all the environmental hazards are in a person's living area, living space. And then also just their, their own personal health factors. Right. I mean, I, I have a, um, you know, a scale here that measure, that measure, measures both my weight, my BMI and my fat percentage that I get on 
uh, fairly reluctantly once a month or so. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, imagine if that, I mean, that could be, that could be on my watch or I could just get on it once a day and then it goes directly to my doctor. My doctor will know immediately, uh, Hey, you're, you're gaining weight. What's going on? Did you drink too much water? Is this water weight gain? Or did you, you know, is this, have you gone on a, ben, a bender lately? You know, that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah. And then, and just, you know, the difficult part for doctors in the future is going to be collating through all that data, right? You're going to need systems that really um, access and pull out the actionable items out of that data rather than just uh, flooding us with so much data that we, we just get, um, you know, warning fatigue or alert fatigue because you're just constantly getting these, mm-hmm. these alerts. Um, but I mean, I think there's, there's, there's definitely some um, room for innovation in that, in that, in that sphere. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited for that. I think there are tremendous opportunities to help improve health along, right? Value-based health or whatever, however, that kind of morphs and the incentives morph uh, in that regard relative to CMMI and what they're doing uh, and and other folks are trying out and all the things that are going on in the home to help understand better uh, kind of what's what's happening outside the walls of, you know, what we call healthcare per se, or the facilities per se. Right. So, right. uh, And uh, yeah. And, and I love your call out to, uh, to veterans and also to med tech companies as to the, my, my personal experience, not having been in the military, but having reviewed lots and lots of resumes and hired people who've come out of the military uh, that they tend, you know, very rigorous. They listen, (laughs) things get done. You don't have to ask them twice. And yeah. I think there's a, and there's, I've seen sometimes trying to pull people in from not less rigorous environments or um, not non-regulated environments, uh, that there's some umbrage taken at, why do we have to have our XYZ marketing reviewed by somebody else? Or why does regulatory get to weigh in? Or why does legal need to look at it? And, and that holds yeah. true in no matter where you are, whether it's medicine or med tech or digital health or engineering, marketing, et cetera, right? There are these rules from multiple different regulatory bodies about what we, that govern what we do um, with yeah. the goal of making us all safer. Yeah, so, for sure. And I, I've yeah, been, I've been so, the, the people in MedTech that I've met through MedTech Vets, I will say this, I've been impressed by them um, just absolutely across the board, um, super impressed. And then there's just also that, the other thing I, I don't want to forget is just like, you know, when I wrote my um, personal statement to medical school, the the, the mm-hmm. tagline for that personal statement was, you know, I ultimately, because I, I had a lot of different opportunities of things I was thinking about doing um, career-wise. And, you know, the my, the line that resonated the most and that I uh, wanted to make sure that the, was the message that the admissions committee received was that, you know, I've ultimately, I'd ultimately decided to go into medicine because I wanted to do, I wanted to devote myself to a life that was unambiguously good. And medicine healthcare felt like that was the arena where I could do that. You know, I felt so much like if I were to go become a lawyer or if I was going to become a businessman, there, there would be a point like in, you know, that, uh, Grisham book rainmaker, I think it was where like, ultimately you have to question your own morality if you're going to continue to be successful in this. And I felt like in medicine, I didn't have to do that. I felt like I, I could keep my morality intact and still be successful. And so as I interact with the med tech vets group, I hear a lot of them say that I went into the military because serving was, you know, serving in the military was the best way I could give back to humanity at that time when I joined. And now I'm leaving the military and I want to go into something that will allow me to maintain that commitment to the overall benefit of humanity. Um, and so 
you know, to all the med tech companies out there, the biotech companies that have a mission to, to, to serve humanity, who have a mission who want to do good for society, I think you will find the right cultural matches in, um, in our service veterans and our military members. Great, 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 great. So uh, on the couple of quick questions, uh, yep. if you, you know, you get to wave your magic wand uh, and yeah. you get to travel anywhere tomorrow for your charge, <laughs> uh, where are, and you still keep all your jobs and all your friends and everything yeah. else you want, right? Of course. Uh, where, where are you going and why? Oh, wow. Holy smokes. Um, I don't, yeah, gosh, it's a hard question. I, I don't know if this is a place, but it's the first one that comes to mind, probably just because of a recent interaction that I had. I've recently been desiring to take a trip to Patagonia. Um, oh, I've wow. been to Argentina once before in my life. That's kind of mm-hmm. the closest to that region that I've ever been. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't I, I think I maybe I just read an article recently about it and just kind of like the how pleasant the communities are down there and how warm and welcoming they are. And also just like a, a, a massive curiosity to go, to go see it and experience it. So I, I don't know that that's the right answer. Maybe if I gave it some more thought, but that's the first one that comes to mind. Your, your answer is whatever your answer is. And that's the right answer. That's it. <laughs> For you from that standpoint, uh, yeah. if you could give, uh, and you've already talked about kind of med tech vets and that. And do you get advice to anyone who is going into med school today or is thinking about medicine, uh, right? Where there's sea change happening uh, at the moment. Uh, what advice would you give them? I think the advice I, I would probably, you know, there's all the standard advice that you give, like just be prepared. It's a long haul um, medical training. It takes a long time. It takes a major toll. It, depending on what part, you know, field of medicine you go into, whether you go into surgery or, you know, go into dermatology or emergency medicine or ophthalmology or whatever the case may be. Um, it, there are periods of it that are like a monastic lifestyle. Um, you have to devote everything about yourself uh, to that field, to medicine, um, in many cases to the de- detriment um, to those around you. So be prepared to be 100% committed and devoted to that profession at, at least at times. And then the other thing I would just kind of caution or have them think about is that medicine and I'll just say healthcare in general is, has become such a, just a, a, a monolithic entity in the United States and around the world, but particularly in the United States that as a physician, I think physicians are becoming increasingly smaller, cogs in that larger machine. Hmm. And so be prepared to, you know, recognize what you are in that larger field, that larger arena, and, and make sure that you're okay with your, your place in that, that field. Um, as opposed to, if you want to be a founder, I know that, you know, amongst Gen Zers, I think I read somewhere recently that most of them say the, the, the most common uh, job cited for their future is like entrepreneur or founder. So if, if you have the desire to be an entrepreneur or founder and like had your own organization, I think increasingly doctors are not leading healthcare organizations. They're increasingly being led by allied health professionals or business folks. And so um, just kind of keep that in mind uh, to make sure you align your, your values and desires up with what you're actually entering into. That's great advice. Anything I didn't ask you, you were hoping I would ask if you were to ask me, Dr. Munoz, if you could implement one healthcare strategy 
to ensure the better outcome of your patients, what would that healthcare strategy be today? Aside from healthy diet and exercise, or aside from, you know, like a healthier, uh, health conscious diet and, and exercise, what I would say is what I'm very excited about. And I've actually written an article, but I haven't published it yet. And I'm kind of debating on whether or not to publish it because it's a little bit of tongue in cheek, but I would probably be prescribing the GLP-1 inhibitors uh, to all of my patients, the Ozempics and the Manjaros and the Wagovias. Because if you look at what kills Americans, uh, it's lifestyle, mm-hmm. it's diseases of lifestyle. And a lot of them are metabolic syndrome, overeating. And I want people to imagine a world where we gave people these GLP-1 inhibitors and it reduced their appetite by like 70%. So they're eating 70% less food. Think of all the problems we could solve in the world. There'd be a healthier population, assuming that they ate less and it was they ate healthy foods when they did eat. Um, you would have less waste because we'd be producing less food. So the demand for food would go mm-hmm. down, which would then hopefully include a, a, uh, a lesser demand of meats, which would then have the ancillary benefit of reducing uh, methane gas emissions in the form of our uh, meat producers. And uh, so you'd have reduced global warming. So in this article that I'm still flirting with that I haven't published yet, I'm, I'm seeing ways and factors that by prescribing GLP-1 inhibitors, which basically just reduce your appetite to almost nothing, how, that, how they can save the planet if you follow that connection. So I haven't yeah, explored it enough. I can't, can't, can't give medical advice yet on it, but that's probably what I'd be doing. I, yeah, you think big, which is great. And I think, you know, those are, no, all I hear are just fluencies and I'm saying, uh, those are the kinds of ideas we need, right? Those are the kinds of things, the the big ideas that can have a substantial impact. I mean, I, I think we've been incrementalizing for a while. And there have been great, there have been great technologies and great steps forward, et cetera. And I don't mean to minimize any of those, but to get where we need to go from where we are today, we need to do some big things you need and to, things yeah. to think across sectors like that. I think, you know, thinking big and acting in accordance with that. So mm-hmm. thinking big and acting big are the big rules, which, which one thing going back to like the startup culture. Um, you know, the, 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 at Pearl Health, the cultural values, um, the number one cultural value that they have, and you can find this on their website, is anything is possible. And you hmm. should think and act accordingly, right? And so one other thing that I just really love about the startup culture, uh, to your point. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. That is great. I love those ideas. And uh, I think we need, you know, I know we need to have more ideas like those that kind of come out of medicine and think holistically. Now you're not just talking holistically about the patient. You're talking holistically about, you know. Society. What? Society. Society. Civilizations as a whole. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, these, these tools as they come out, particularly tools that your listeners are inventing and, and um, you know, bringing to market, those are the tools that are going to give us those abilities. Like I said, I mean, we all know what needs to happen. We know that we, I think we know the targets. We know the things that need to be addressed. I think just historically, it's just been a lack of tools to, to, to make the, to take those measures, to, to be able to be effective in, in tackling those targets and, and hitting those targets. It's just been a lack of the appropriate tools. And so now technology, you know, it allows us to move in leaps and bounds and, and it, um, I, if, I don't know if it's the right word, but it exponentializes 
our abilities, right? It amasses our abilities. It makes us bigger than we really are and, and able to do things quicker, faster, stronger than we did things in the past. And, and that's what you need in order to attack some attack to attack and tackle these bigger problems, which, so I do want to send out that, that credit to all of your listeners, listeners who are out there, you know, fighting that battle. Um, I think the, the world will be a better place for the things that they do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would just, yeah, I, I did want to, as a one last disclaimer, I did want to apologize to your listeners because I, I think I probably am not the standard, uh, I'd listen to a couple of your podcasts, I'm not the standard guest that you'd normally get. And I just hope that I covered all of the information, provided valuable information. And if anybody wants bad medical advice, I can also deliver that too, in addition to <laughs> podcasting material, free of charge. <laughs> you don't have to say that. No, it's, you know, it's, uh, I think it was great. We, we talked about a lot. There are, you know, we could, there are a thousand things we could talk about. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, it was fascinating for me to talk and, and think through and hear you talk about it and really listen to it and listen to what you're saying. So I'm sure they'll enjoy it as well. Well, thank you. I definitely enjoyed meeting a a fellow Dookie and, um, this was wonderful and I'll just, I'll just give out. So if anybody does want to contact me, because I, I have a pretty small social uh, social media presence, but if anybody wants to reach out to me um, and further talk about anything else that you and I covered, my email address is so JB Munoz is my name, but my uh, email address is just all that written out. So it'd be Juliet Bravo Munoz. So J-U-L-E-T-B-R-A-V-O-M-U-N-O-Z, Juliet Bravo Munoz at gmail.com. Now we really know that you were in the military. <laughs> yeah. Or a nice. pilot in a former life or something like that. That's right. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today for this. I very, very much appreciate it. And that's it for Message Engineer Show. And we'll see you next time.